This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. My name is Zach Lutz. If you're visiting here, I'm not much past a visitor myself, as Ronnie just said. Uh, I am excited to be here, and I do want to thank you all. I'll take this time for those who uh, helped provide us meals and who brought us things when we first moved here. Um, we do have some Tupperware. If you want it back, you're going to have to tell us who you are, because we don't remember whose is whose. So find us if you would like that back. In March of 2015, a man named Sean O'Brien decided to go dancing with a group of his friends that, that he knew semi-well. They were, they were new friends. Now, Sean is quite obese, and in some sense, he was taking a pretty big risk going with these newly made friends out dancing. But as they go, eventually he drops his guard, he starts moving a little bit, and eventually he really gets into it. I mean, this man is moving. Body rolls. I mean, he's having the time of his life. They're having a good time. Unfortunately, though, in risking himself, some people took advantage of the situation, and out of the corner of his eye, he spotted some people taking pictures of him with a little bit of a sneer. Fast forward a couple days, and he'll see that on the internet, he's become a little bit of a social media sensation, but in the worst way imaginable. In the post, it stated, spotted this specimen trying to dance the other week. He stopped when he saw us laughing. In the first photo, you can see that he's dancing his heart out, like I just described. I mean, he was going at it. And in the second photo, he stands turned away with his head hung low in complete and utter shame. Suddenly, he found himself asking these sorts of questions. Do I have anything to offer? Am I wanted? Am I worthy? Am I special? Am I loved? I think this story strikes us because we often ask the same questions about ourselves, and in particularly in relationship with our God. In fact, the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were asking a similar question. You see, they had believed in Christ early on. They had embraced this faith, left sometimes friends and family, and they were excited. Christ said he was coming back soon. But time had gone by, and they were really starting to suffer real consequences. Some were losing their reputation, some their properties, and some even their lives because of this faith. And the people are beginning to wonder, does God really love us? Did he really mean it? Maybe he saw me for who I really am. Maybe I've been exposed, and maybe I am useless. So the author to the letter of Hebrews is writing to address this sort of feeling and this sort of exposure. And here at the end of his letter, he is summarizing what he has to say. So from Hebrews chapter 13, please stand as I read God's word. It'll be verses 10 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 13. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice are burned 
outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord does indeed stand forever, and this is his word to you. Please be seated. So the initial response of this pastor to his people is a little strange. It starts in a weird place. He's talking about altars and sacrifices, and it helps to understand where these people are coming from. See, they had left Judaism where they actually had an altar and they actually made sacrifices. And some of their temptations when asking the question of, does God delight in me? Does God take delight in who I am? Some of them said, well, I know how God takes delight in me, and it's when I bring sacrifices to the temple. But in this new religion, I'm not exactly sure what it is that I do. So when tempted to return to this old system, their pastor's response is that those sacrifices are now misplaced because the ultimate sacrifice had actually come. The price had been paid, and they were now permanently delighted in because of their status in Christ. So 10 and 11 are talking about the sacrifices, but look with me in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The old sacrifices couldn't actually sanctify. The author of Hebrews had already talked about this. They couldn't actually change who they were. They couldn't actually make the people delightful. What actually makes people delightful is Jesus' sacrifice. When we are wondering, does God actually delight in who I am? The answer is yes, God does delight in who you are because of Jesus' sacrifice for you on your behalf. There's nothing else you have to bring. There's nothing else you can bring. I mean, he's gonna mention a couple of other things here. But first and foremost, everything is based on the work of Christ. But I think Many of us in this room have an understanding that Christians say such things. We say, yes, it's only Christ that I'm found delightful, but it still kind of leaves us uh, wondering exactly how that works. I know I find myself, we use the language of Christ's blood has washed me clean. I'm covered by the blood of the lamb. And these are very biblical metaphors and imageries, but I was always left sometimes like, you know, I've been washed, but I kind of, I've already sinned again, you know? Um, and what if God sees me now? Does God, does God still delight in me? I've been covered by Jesus, but, but what if a piece of me actually sticks out and God actually sees me instead of seeing Jesus? The thing about the word sanctify in our passage is that it, it means something internal about us has been changed. Something fundamental to our beings by Christ's sacrifice has changed. It is more like our DNA has been changed so that every piece of me now screams Christ. It now screams delightful. We're no longer sons of Adam producing sins 
from our old natures, but we are children of the living God, living in righteousness, delightful in his presence. Christ does cover us. Christ does wash us, but he also makes us delightful in the eyes of God. That's how powerful his sacrifice is. There is no more shame to be found. We can show up with our true selves and dance with our Lord, and he delights to see us. So when we doubt God's delight, the first thing we run to is the good news that you were actually delighted in because of the work of Christ. The only sacrifice that you have is a sacrifice that was made really without your input. You are a fundamentally different person than you once were. The author is going to continue, though, and say that there are three tangible changes that come from people who are fundamentally changed. Three changes that bring delight to our God. Our disposition our worship, and the exercise of our gifts. First, our disposition. I was born into a Christian family and raised in a Christian family, so I didn't have a, a, a drastic conversion experience later in life. I was a Christian in high school, but that didn't leave me necessarily mature in my faith. It'd be a lie to say that I was facing a loss of property or life in high school, but I did have this sense, maybe more perceived than real, that I could be at a loss of reputation. Loss of reputation among my friends, my peers in the school, the people on my sports teams. And my response to this was a chip on the shoulder. I kind of became hardened. I thought of myself as better, smug, impenetrable. I'm better than these people who are non-Christians. And I think, looking back, there's a couple things that shocked me. Uh, one is how quickly I can return to that same feeling. It doesn't take much. You know, you think like, oh, I leave high school. I'm so much more mature now. Uh, no, it takes just the right group of people in the right circumstance to be like, man, I'm feeling that same sort of embarrassment. The second thing is, is that this coping mechanism, as it were, to deal with my own shame and embarrassment, is something of my own invention. It's something that I've created working under this former system of thinking to protect myself from harm. And a chip on the shoulder is just one of the ways that we as humans respond to these sorts of feelings. Some of us are perfectionists. Some of us work really hard to prove that we're not going to make a mistake. Some of us are very charismatic, and we can gloss it over with jokes and relationships and making everybody happy. We have a lot of little ways that we use in some ways our gifts to protect ourselves. And the question I want to ask is, does that sort of disposition please God? Look with me in verses 13 and 14. In verse 12, he had just talked about how Jesus suffered outside the camp. In 13, he says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, when the author here is talking about leaving the camp and going where Christ is and bearing his reproach, he's talking about leaving behind these broken systems of self-preservation that we use and running towards dependence on Christ. And what does dependence on Christ 
actually look like because it's kind of a, a vague term. It's asking for a disposition change, a change that requires confession of our sinfulness and acknowledge that we need Christ at every single moment of our lives. And what that looks like is sometimes being embarrassed in front of our friends and family. Sometimes it means showing up at work and saying, I messed up and I sinned against you. I was wrong. Please forgive me. That sort of disposition is something that does not come in the old way, old system of thinking, but comes as we leave the camp and follow Christ to a new kingdom. But why would someone do something this uncomfortable? It, you know, why, why would we choose to point out our own failures to people, maybe even in ways people didn't even notice? They might even say, I, I didn't even feel that you had sinned against me. I just thought that this, that's just the way you were. The fundamentally changed person may not understand it fully, but they have a deep sense that their own self-created safety nets, the old camps and old systems that they used to live in, are actually traps that suffocate us. They're self-serving acts. People can't actually delight in us because people don't actually know us. We're projecting an image of ourselves that isn't real. They might be aware of our abilities, our stoicism, our ability to have it all together, but the fundamentally changed person understands that real peace demands that we be seen for who we really are. And the only place that can safely be done is in the presence of Christ. Now, I, our culture will talk a lot about being your true self. The problem with some of the way that they address it is that being your true self and being honest about your own imperfections is that there's no easy way to say that I'm sorry and that my sins have been paid for. We just kind of boldface say, this is who I am, deal with it. I'm not trying to change to be a better person because no one can necessarily define that for me. Christ is the only safe place because he is the sacrifice who actually paid for the wrongdoing. If honesty about your sin ruins a relationship that you cherish, Christ is there. If honesty about your tendencies and about the way you function at work requires you to miss that promotion, Christ is there, outside of the camp. That sort of reproach is the reproach that we are called to follow him into. And we do that because that is where Christ is. He saw us and he loved us before our confession. He saw us and loved us before our feeble attempts at honesty. He made us people who desire the light. If we are perceived to lose our reputation, our property, or our lives, we recognize that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And in this city, in this kingdom, we are known, cherished, and delighted in. 
So we know we are delighted in, first and foremost, because Christ fundamentally changed who we are. And this fundamental change drives a disposition, disposition towards interacting with the world differently. This in itself is immensely freeing, but the author of Hebrews says that there are other acts that we can do that actually bring delight to the Lord. Look with me in verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The people of Hebrews, as I've mentioned, were tempted to return back to this sacrificial system that, where they, they had understood, like, this is how... This is how I please God. And as I also mentioned, our system isn't quite the same as sacrificing animals, but our system is kind of our own acts of self-preservation, our own acts of saying, I'm all right, I'm, you know, this is, this is how I merit love in the world. And the author is saying this, that when I am tempted to return to my chip on the shoulder sort of attitude, my response should be a sacrifice of praise to God the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And the primary way that this is done is what we're doing right now. Functionally, what the author of Hebrews is saying to us is saying, when you're tempted to return to your old ways, your response needs to be go to church. It's kind of a bold thing to say from a guy who's new at a church. I gotta be honest, you know, come back here. Um, and unless we forget the power of praise and what we do here, when we are singing to Jesus' name as it was pointed out before. I'm not much of a sports fan, like, like at all. Like I'm not really sure what season of any sport we're in right now. I like playing sports even though I'm awful at most, but I literally have no idea about sports teams. Nevertheless, I've had the opportunity to live in two cities where their sports teams have won national championships. I was living in Kansas City when the Royals won the World Series in 2015, and in St. Louis when the Blues won the Stanley Cup. I think last year, last season, I don't know. It was recently. And it was powerful. I didn't watch an entire Royals game all season. When they won the World Series, the city shut down. I worked at a school for two years, and I never once got a snow day, but I got a Royals day. They canceled school. In St. Louis, I've never seen a hockey game. I didn't even watch the Stanley Cup one. But you could feel it in the city. When they won, you could hear fireworks, the people honking their horns and shouting in the streets. That is powerful. It's powerful enough to suck in the most oblivious and unexpecting person. So in the context of people who are struggling to remember if God loves them, and if God delights in them, the response from their pastor is to say, go to church, hear his praises sung. Hear others around you sing that God loves you if your heart's not there. When your heart is there, sing it on behalf of others in this room. Acknowledge your dependence upon him. Experience his grace and mercy in the midst of his people. At this point, though, I do want to take a second and recognize that churches aren't perfect. So the command to come to church strikes some of us a little sour sometimes. We say, well, actually, I've tried to be myself at church and be honest about who I am, and I was actually treated very poorly. 
And for this, I'm actually, if you'll forgive me, going to reach back a little bit to the disposition of who we are. Because not only as individuals are we in the disposition of people who seek confession and repentance and humility, but we as Trinity Church and Christian churches everywhere need to be people of the disposition of humility an acknowledgement that we as a corporate body together embrace old systems ways of thinking that crush people. We use our own gifts even in church to harm each other. Part of the reason that we have this uncomfortable point in our service where we do this corporate confession of sin is for an opportunity for us as a body of people to come together and say, we mess up. We need Jesus. We need to acknowledge that we sin, that we're trying to live in our own systems of working, that we need the Word and the Spirit to show us our sin, cause us to repent, and allow us to operate again in a way that delights God. We can't manufacture God moving up here. And we have a time of confession for those times that we all together choose to believe that we can do such a thing. It's God who moves. And he delights to hear us sing praises to his name. So we're delight to God because Christ fundamentally changed who we are. Because of this, our disposition is now to follow Christ where he is into these places that bear reproach, but also put us in unsafe places. One act that we can bring is an act of praise. But what about me, myself? Can, am I pleasing to God, like, in, in who I am? Is my, the way that I've been gifted pleasing to God? Look with me in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Doing good and sharing what you have. I know we immediately think of sharing our material blessings and resources, but the author is actually trying to do something really important here at the end of his letter. Is he's tying together all these things, fundamentally changed person, people of different dispositions, people who praise his name, and he is saying, because your DNA has been changed, you've been gifted in certain ways, he's saying, share yourself. At the risk of marrying the name Lysol Lutz for the rest of my life, I do have to confess that I'm good at cleaning. And just a, a side note, Ronnie sends out these emails during the week and gave me the name of Lysol Zach, I believe it was, or Lysol Lutz, one of those things. And I was going to be cleaning all of your chairs with Lysol, which is important because we're entering flu season. That's where that name comes from. So at the risk of meriting this for the rest of my life, uh, I would like to tell you that I am actually good at cleaning. I, so my giftings have actually allowed me to systematically look at a room and notice details and then like strategize and organize and, and be able to say this is what needs to be done in this order for like the deepest best clean. My wife will tell you this. It's not like I do this. However, just like all of our giftings, I'm utilizing these giftings in the world sometimes under an old system way of thinking. I'm cleaning because I'm stressed or I'm procrastinating because I feel ashamed or embarrassed by something that I've done. 
and I can throw myself into this self-service. I'm trying to cover who I am. I'm exercising my gifts from a place of discontent. So what does it look like to exercise our gifts and share who we are, our God-given gifts, in a way that brings Him delight? I think a couple things for us to note first is that sometimes we use spiritual gifts in a very kind of aloof way. And so when we're talking about giftings, we think we like are doing our normal day-to-day lives at our job, and then it's like, oh, my spiritual gift is kicking in, I'm going to do this thing. And sometimes the Bible talks about it that way, but most of the time it's talking about while you're doing your day-to-day things, you're of this disposition that is now blessing other people. Do you know how you're gifted? And I'm not necessarily talking about your occupation. And in fact, I want to say this to the kids who are still in the room, because sometimes as adults, the only thing that we can think to ask you is like, what are you going to do when you grow up? And we kind of make it all about occupation. I think a better question would be to ask, how has God gifted you right now? We're all here in Puerto Rico in this room today with gifts so ordained by God to be around these people that we are around to right now. And the same thing for later today and work tomorrow. And for a little while, you'll have the same sort of giftings and things that God is giving you every day. And then a while those will change. You may change jobs. Your kids may grow up and leave. You may be surrounded in a different place and not in Puerto Rico. How has God gifted you? And are you exercising those gifts according to his kingdom's principles? Not self-service, self-protection, and fear. But sharing with one another, everyone around you. Sharing what we have is not less than our material things, but includes our very selves. And I think one important way to think about sharing ourselves with other people is what we're trying to tell other people through our actions. In some way, evangelism becomes a lot more personal. Less about switching. I'm at work, I'm doing my task, and all of a sudden it's like, boom. Now I'm like evangelist mode. Repent, be baptized. It's more about people watching the way that you interact with the world as a disposition of someone who is humble, quick to repent, sure of their love in Christ, so sure that they would be bold enough to reveal their own wrongdoings. And them catching a glimpse although a limping, broken along glimpse of a newer, better system. A new kingdom where they might catch a glimpse that they too can be loved, cherished, delighted in. They can be sure that God loves them. And we don't do this perfectly. We go through this cycle over and over and over again. We mess up. We go back to Jesus. We're confirmed by, like, uh, sure of, our, of God's love for us in Jesus. 
And then we come back to boldly trying out our gifts again. And then we realize, oh, actually, I was using this in a little bit of a self-serving way. And it's just, it's one big cycle, but it's a beautiful cycle. Sean O'Brien's story, who I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, resolves by a group of four women activists seeing his shame on the internet. Finding him and using all their gifts and talents to throw a party for him in L.A. He throws an opening pitch at a Dodgers game. He gets to meet famous people. He's on the news everywhere because four women decided to share their gifts and talents to edify and restore this man's dignity and respect. But more than that, they also gave him this beautiful opportunity to dance with his friends. Old friends and new friends, people he had just met, and to be delighted in. Brothers and sisters, because Christ fundamentally changed who you are, you are a delightful person. You are loved, you are cherished, you are given gifts and given opportunities to exercise those gifts. You have a disposition now that makes people go, why, why would you do that? You come together in worship to encourage one another and to receive that encouragement. And we get to exercise our gifts in a way where God looks at you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is who I made you to be. And by the power of Christ, we can do that. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this fundamental change in our beings. That without something that we have to merit by our own power, we just are who you've created us to be. And we live in a disposition that drives us back to the cross. We ask, Lord, that we would never lose this richness of our faith. That we would constantly have people around us that would push us towards the good news of this gospel every single day. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.